The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, who remains deeply committed to the work of justice for the oppressed. To find out more about the work of IJM or to follow them on social, head to IJM.org. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we welcome a very special guest, Dr. Sandra Morgan. Dr. Sandra Morgan is the director for the Global Center for Women and Justice. More on that during the interview. In addition, Dr. Morgan is an educator and a nurse and is recognized globally for her expertise in combating human trafficking and working to end violence against women. I am very excited that she is here. She is really one of the leading thinkers on this topic and brings a lot of wisdom to the table today, of course. Today, we're really going to do kind of a, a 101 on what human trafficking is, how it can be recognized, and why we as activists, why it's important for us to be aware and to be activated and to actually step in and help. I actually recorded this interview earlier this year, and then the unrest happened in the wake of the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others. And we focused our attention solely for many, many weeks on the facets of race and activism, which we will continue to do. But it was time to air this show because human trafficking is an extremely important conversation for us to have and for us to be involved in. There are globally and in North America, millions of people who are not safe, who are enslaved, and who need people to show up for them. But how do we do that? I would be remiss if I didn't mention that International Justice Mission, who presents The New Activist, shows up again and again around the globe. You can learn more about IJM at IJM.org. And also, leaders like Dr. Morgan show up and help us understand how we can go and do the same. So today, we listen in, we learn, and we go and do likewise. Here is Dr. Sandra Morgan. Your career has, it seems to me, kind of a through line of helping people. And I know that that's kind of a basic way to put it. But first, as a pediatric nurse uh, and then as a volunteer with Doctors of the World and continues and continues. When did you know that helping people was going to be so much a part of your life? I think I thought it was a part of everybody's life and didn't realize other people didn't feel the same compunction to to stop and do something. And so it may be a bit of the fact that I'm a firstborn daughter and my mother was ill quite a bit. And so I took on more responsibilities for caretaking for the family, for my brother and sister. So I think it's uh, from the time I can remember, if something needs to be done, you stop and do it. Wow. And so that moves into, I mean, really your entire academic and professional career is that compunction to serve and to help. Were you the kind of kid growing up who always like stood up to the bullies in the playground? Or I, I guess what I'm getting at is like, what makes you, you? Well, I loved writing when I was like middle school. I think I my dad was a Toastmaster. And so 
he and I would spend time writing speeches together. So my first speech I ever wrote, I was 12 years old, and I remember the title was The Pen is Mightier Than the Sword. So I kind of laid down that kind of principle as a way to approach things from a more analytical and study the issues, which is one of our mantras here. That's always been a piece of look at things first before you jump right into it. How did you go from then being really solidly in the medical field to somehow it doesn't feel like a shift, but there's a movement towards more of the the activism and the combating of human trafficking. How does that shift take place in your life? Well, as a pediatric nurse, the first time I ever took care of a commercially sexually exploited child, we didn't have that language. It was a 14-year-old boy, and his mother and stepfather were selling him for drugs. I just did everything I did in his care. I was night charge nurse, just from a sense of he must be in terrible pain, and I just want to help him find a new connection to humanity. And so when you work with kids who have been abused, kids who have suffered in any way, if it's illness or whatever, you're always looking for signs of of what direction to go that will get the best result for that child. When we moved overseas and my husband was director of Hellenic Theological School in Athens, I discovered that the Athens government did not recognize my registered nurse license. And I would have to go back to school in a European school to work professionally. So I started working on just really being public health education. And that's when I discovered human trafficking really right in front of me on the street every day in that country and became part of a group that we were speaking up and eventually became a volunteer at the shelter. Interestingly enough, though, I learned a lot from the people I worked with about what helps and what doesn't help. And again, my nursing skills were not necessary. They had plenty of people who were licensed and could do that. And I wouldn't be able to even as a volunteer do things that require a license because it wasn't recognized. But I was also certified to teach English as a second language. And the director said, please come and do classes because if the victims, now survivors, are doing something that's contributing to their future, it plants dreams. And if you have a dream for the future, you don't give up right now. How did you know, you said that you saw human trafficking in front of you. How did you know? What clued you in to the fact that there were people being trafficked? First of all, you understand that in Greece, prostitution is legal. And so I didn't even look in the beginning because I walked past brothels that were open in the mornings. They were open all day, 
on my way to my office on a main street. But when I saw really young girls standing in those doorways, I knew something was wrong and I needed to find out what it was. So I want to get into the Global Center for Women and Justice, but I, I also want folks that are listening to this that may or be new to terms like human trafficking. You said you knew something was wrong. So what is human trafficking? Human trafficking is when someone is pulled into some sort of recruitment program, they're lured, they may even be forcibly brought into a situation, and then they're kept in that role, either through force, fraud, or coercion, for the purpose of somebody else to make money. Commercial sexual exploitation is a business model. Commerce is, is a business model. And whether or not it's for commercial sex or for labor, either one, someone is making a profit even if they're not actually making a profit off that individual in a direct sense, they're making a profit because they're not paying for that labor. I remember one of the first times I understood that labor trafficking was happening right there in Athens was because one of the girls had a family emergency and she was from Sri Lanka and her family wanted her to come back, but her employer had her passport and wouldn't allow her. And she was petrified at what was going to happen. And so I began to look at the recently, that was right after the Trafficking Victims Protection Act was passed. And we didn't really understand at that point how prolific labor trafficking was because sex trafficking was much easier to see. One of the first girls that I worked with from the Ukraine had been recruited as a 17-year-old, graduated at the top of her class from high school. Her father had died in one of the Chechnyan conflicts, and she had an eight-year-old brother and her mother, depending on her to become the breadwinner. So when she saw an ad for jobs in Greece, she went, she filled out what looked like a legitimate job application. She stood in line, she went through the interviews, she waited anxiously to find out if she was going to get the job. When she did, she went home, told her mom, I'm leaving in two weeks, I got the job, I'm gonna send half the money to you and half I'm going to save to go to nursing school. So this was her way forward to find a future. When she arrived in Greece, she was brutalized, gang raped by men dressed in law enforcement attire, not necessarily because they were, but because it's part of the breaking down process. And after 19 months, her rescue, if you can see or hear air quotes, it was because these were businessmen who had moved her every couple of weeks. When she lost all hope that she would ever escape, they said, that's okay, we know where your eight-year-old brother lives because they had all of her information in that application. And they said, if you run away, we'll just go get him. 
because there's a market for boys. So when she was rescued, these businessmen put their sickest girls in one bar and called the hotline so that they could unload defective product. They oh, were man. just thinking about making the money. So human trafficking is a grave human rights issue and it's exploitation. The term exploitation is a financial term. You're looking to exploit the land, exploit the people, exploit the opportunities. And it doesn't have any respect for humanity, whether it's a man, a woman, a child, and the elements of force, fraud, and coercion are typical and very easy to see once you begin to have a conversation in your community. Do these kinds of stories exist everywhere in the world, or is it just in places that are, you know, second and third world? Well, here in Orange County, where I served for about three years as the administrator of a federal task force, our latest statistics since we started serving victims, we have more than 1,200, over 1,000 victims of sex and labor trafficking in one county in California. That's intense. How is that possible? In a society governed by, I mean, let's talk about just in the Orange County U.S. context. There are laws preventing it. There are, in theory, police and law enforcement who are who can make arrests. Like, how is it possible that this exists in a modern society? It's greed. People want to make money. I've listened to so many of our DAs, our district attorneys, our AUSAs, and they often report that in their conversations with the trafficker, in the role case of, of sex trafficking, also often identified as a pimp, they often say, it's nothing personal. This is how I make my living. This is how I make money. And when you look at models of how much money they make, Orange County is a destination place as well as a recruiting place because we have vulnerable people groups who face housing insecurity. Uh, the cost of living here is very high, but we also have a lot of visitors who come into town at our convention center, as well as a home-based customer base and selling sex online. The last time I talked to one of our DAs, he told me 80% of the sex trafficking market is online now, not on the street. So there's lots of ways to investigate, but how do you keep a team investigating almost 24-7 because the internet has changed the game completely. So to rewind a bit in your story, you are in Athens. You see these people being exploited. How does it turn for you from awareness to action? You know, that took a year for me because yeah. I couldn't figure out what was happening. It took me a while to find my peeps. I wasn't a professor at that time. I was looking at this through a public health nursing perspective. And so my friends in the Athens International Nurses Association, we, we got together regularly. We found people to talk to. 
but eventually connected with a professor at the Athens University. And as we began to understand, then we took action. And there were new little nonprofits that were popping up in different places that came in to do street outreach. They had training. They'd been in other countries. It was kind of amusing because I had a friend working on human trafficking in India come and speak, but that was like in the 1998. And she talked about it happening in India. So we thought it happened over there. But because she gave us some structure for the process, that's when we were really able to start seeing it. And once we understood it, we could develop strategies, first of all, to find victims. And victims in Athens were often there because the border opened between Bulgaria and Albania and Greece, so they could come in very easily. We also have many, many ports, and so victims from Northern Africa came in. Lots and lots of labor trafficking victims from Eritrea, Ethiopia, Sudan, Nigeria, as well as sex trafficking. So we started with developing training for our law enforcement. I actually was able to bring someone from our State Department in the early days, Laura Letter, to do training at our Athens Bar Association. Because if you don't train the people who are going to prosecute, you end up in a, we rescued, but then we didn't get any any justice for that. How is that possible? Because it sounds to me, when I hear the stories that are telling, like how could you not prosecute that just definitively and easily? What kind of training does a person need to be able to They have to parse out those elements of force, fraud, and coercion. And in a country where prostitution is legal, it's very difficult to prove. So eventually, the majority of the efforts turn towards protection, you know, the three Ps, prevention, protection, prosecution, and the protection side of providing survivor care that's trauma-informed. But again resources are limited. The Doctors of the World shelter was not a sustainable protection, and they eventually closed its doors. So mostly nonprofits, the government opened a shelter in northern Greece, ran out of funds. So eventually nonprofits come in and they take up that space of providing survivor care that's really mostly based on a a donor platform. Their donors help keep serving because of the outrage for the loss of human dignity and the exploitation. When the Trafficking in Persons Report added partnership to the three Ps, so then there was a fourth P, there became just a global network of partners that were largely focused on protection, some lightly prevention, although I have really strong feelings about what real prevention looks like, and then being the main partners for providing care for an individual. Can you tell me what that prevention looks like? Like what real prevention looks like? 
well, remember, I'm a nurse. And so I'm yes. talking about primary, secondary, tertiary. So it's a three three level process. And I actually did a podcast this last year because I want people to understand that holding an awareness rally is not very preventative. It helps people see it and identify it. But if you're working on reducing the prevalence of young people like that 14-year-old boy that I mentioned in the beginning, then you're going to have to go back upstream and find out what made him so vulnerable. Well, there's two things. First of all, he had a family member with a substance abuse disorder. And secondly, there was a demand for selling boys. And this wasn't even in Orange County. This was up in central California, rural area, rural area. So you have to look at what does demand prevention look like? And then how do we identify at-risk kids? Because they're in our schools. And we already know that you can't go into a school and tell kids, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this or these are the seven red flags of a trafficker because they think they're invincible. Adolescence right. invincibility is a thing. So how do you build safe communities? And we use a model here called live to free, the number two, and our college students go into the high schools and they do peer to peer youth empowered prevention. And the kids leave those programs knowing what to do if one of their friends gets lured or pulled into something like this. And I love that when I'm talking to a young man or a young woman about what human trafficking looks like, they do not think it will happen to them because they're invincible and they're smarter. And if you tell them something as a parent, they're going to roll their eyes and say, I'm going to go anyway. You don't trust me, all those kinds of things. But when you talk about their friends, their cousins, they don't think their friends are nearly as smart as they are. And so they want that information because they're a very tight knit community. We understand how peer pressure works. And then they do role playing asking, so what happens if your best friend is going to go meet somebody she met online at the mall? What are you going to do? Well, they don't do the same things we do as adults. They don't say, (laughs) tell her not to go. They say, I'm going to go with her. I'm going to protect her. I'm going to call a couple other people. They have all different ways. And that kind of youth empowered peer to peer led prevention is one of the ways that I think we can do a much better job, but it's not a one-off. So that makes it expensive. It's time consuming and time is a commodity. We have to manage that. So scaling it up is, is definitely a challenge. Can you tell us a bit about what the Global Center for Women and Justice is and does? Our Global Center for Women and Justice really started under the leadership of two professors in the early 2000s to address issues of violence against women. One professor was a domestic violence expert, and the model 
was based on studying the issues, becoming a voice and making a difference. And that little three statement mantra has an academic version as well by looking into research, advocacy, education, and collaboration to build hope. So we had this cute acronym, REACH, research. So study it first, figure out what is going on. And education, that's why we started the Ending Human Trafficking podcast. And then advocacy, being a voice. And if you start putting together some kind of promotional package, doing demonstrations and marches, and you don't know what you're talking about, you can actually cause more harm than good. And we've all seen that. And then how do we build teams? How do we do things in collaboration? And we we just finished last week, I'm actually kind of exhausted, our annual Insure Justice Conference. And we had participants from every sector in our community. We partnered with our Department of Education. That impacts 500,000 children in our county. We partnered with our child welfare. We partnered with our juvenile justices. We partnered with our state department in DC. We partnered with the faith-based community here and with service providers so that we're all studying the issues together. We learn to use the same language, which helps because collaboration is messy. It's much easier. You can go a lot faster if you go by yourself, but you can't go as far. I want to dive into a point that you said a little bit more because you and the Global Center for Women and Justice really start as you said, with this research and education, like this is the first piece, then we move into advocacy. Yet I think that when we first hear about the horrific nature of human trafficking, we just want to be Navy SEALs and kick down doors and save kids and may have demonstrations. I'm curious, like if you could dig in a little bit more to like, what specifically about the education first approach helps make ultimately the work of helping people more effective? That is probably going to take a really long time, but I'm glad. <laughs> sorry, you- and you have a whole series of podcasts. Yeah, yeah sorry. Um, so for me, okay, so when I started, I decided I wanted to reinvent myself as a professor and replicate this kind of effort in our students. I wanted to do my PhD on trafficking, and my professor said, this is a long time ago, but said, well, you know, I don't know where that's going. Can you do something else on violence against women? And so I had been to um, northern Iraq and been to several different universities, and one of the universities reached out and asked if I would be lead on a grant application for the UK British Council to build capacity for women in post-conflict Iraq. And so it sounded really interesting. And in fact, it's why I left being the administrator of the task force because I got the grant. And what I learned is that empowering the people on the ground takes a lot of education. You have to teach them new ways of looking at things. But eventually, we developed out of that education and participatory action research, constantly checking back in with them 
what they wanted to do, how they could see reducing violence against women. And this is in a country where women weren't even considered part of the genome for your family tree. It was zero. And so teaching people simple things like, yes, you have genes from your mother and your father. And mm. beginning to work with male students at the university and meeting with the president of the university. And eventually I became colleagues and friends with the deputy minister of higher education in Baghdad. And we were able to formally establish women in higher education leadership network that continues today. We host professors from various universities in Iraq here at Vanguard. We just had a crew of faculty from a, a nursing department at a university in central Iraq just a few months ago. But the idea that education is a constant and you're always on this cycle of learning more and bringing other people into it. And as people learn, then they begin to know what steps they can take. And this is the thing about education. If I come in and teach them how to do one thing, when I leave, that's the only thing they know how to do. And it may not actually be the best way in their context, mm -hmm. but if I teach them principles, if I teach them human rights, if I teach them basic things like genomes, they know then how it works. The professors from the university in central Iraq that were here were all male professors, and I was invited in to do a lecture on human trafficking. At the beginning of the lecture, I asked, do you have human trafficking there? And they were like, no. Then I started teaching on it because that's what I was there for. And they kept popping up and interrupting me saying, but we've got that. But we've got that. They just needed a new language. And they went back motivated to begin to identify trafficking victims the way it looks in their community. I appreciate you taking such a, a complex a question that probably takes a lot longer to fully answer and boiling it down for us just so clearly. I'm struck by the fact that when I speak on behalf of IJM and talk about modern day slavery in its different forms, I am always surprised at how few people know at all that there is any form of slavery in the world today. Human trafficking, I mean, generally, I think the words human trafficking has come more into the, to the public lexicon, but I think that generally there's just not an understanding of the scope and size of the problem. One, do you agree with that? And two, why isn't it just so clearly known to everyone? That is a really complex question. <laughs> I think you're right. Human trafficking has a lot of visibility now. There are documentaries, and again, I'm using verbal air quotes there, but because they don't always tell a very accurate story, they just have one person's series of interviews and photographs. Statistics are problematic because we don't have consistent methodologies. People ask me, about statistics and I pull out my local notes. I'm like, well, we've got 22% over here of labor trafficking victims, but that's with no investigation. 
So I always want to explain the context for those statistics. So the fact that we have more sex trafficking victims here than labor trafficking does not mean that there is more sex trafficking. It means that prostitution is illegal. So it makes it easier to find labor trafficking is illegal, but the things that labor trafficking victims are doing are not illegal. They're washing dishes in a restaurant. They're changing beds in a hotel. They're cleaning multi-million dollar homes in our community. So how do we find them? So I think the idea of people not being able to see human trafficking is because it's much more complicated than the transatlantic slave trade. There was a clear visual difference Mm -hmm. between the slave master and the slave. And you went by a tobacco plantation and you could see that. We have to understand the complexities. People always want me to give them three things that they can do. Right. Oh my gosh, wouldn't that be nice? But the problem is that it's like becoming, looking at the stars. You have to understand the constellations and have studied those in order to identify them. And that's what we have. We have a constellation of bright points that can draw us so that we can identify trafficking. But there's not one size fits all of human trafficking. And so you have to learn 12, 13, 14. And then there's the differences between the cultures that you have to bring that into your wheelhouse as well. So I, sometimes people call me a human trafficking expert. And I tell them, the more I know, the less I know that I know. Yeah. Embarrassed to <laughs> my next questions were, uh, you know, what's three things or what's something we can do? But I do want, I know that people have been listening to you and their bell is rung and they want to be able to be helpful in some way. Yet, like you said, I mean, it's a constellation of stars. Like this is a huge, massive issue. Issue isn't even the right word. It's bigger than the word issue. This is a massive pandemic. And so for someone who is feeling very small, but wanting to help, what would you offer them as maybe not their first steps, but their first series of steps to begin to actually serve people that are suffering? Prevention, prevention, prevention. Right now in the news, everybody's washing their hands five times an hour because of the public education on how to prevent passing the coronavirus. And I think we have to start thinking about prevention. And you may not be able to take care of a rescued victim, but you could get involved in an after-school program that makes sure that a 14-year-old boy who's being abused is seen. Someone, if they have one adult who is connected, that can be a prevention because somebody notices that he's not in school that he didn't show up for some activities. So getting involved in prevention at the local level, it's not glorious because they haven't been victimized yet. And wouldn't that be a success that 
you volunteered every week and none of your kids became victims. But there's not a lot of glory in that. Becoming a volunteer for survivor care takes more time and the requirements are pretty strict as far as learning trauma-informed care, going through background checks and all of those things. But also finding out what your community does, you can become part of partnership. The idea of labor trafficking, how are we going to be able to identify labor trafficking better? I think we have to add a fifth P. We have to add policy, which is an implementation of the principles at the local level. So for instance, if you're in a corporation or a church, whoever does your procurement, they need to use, here in California, we have the Supply Chain Transparency Act, but the Department of Labor was mandated in 2008 to actually build out reports of forced and child labor products that end up on our shelves that come into our country so that we can choose not to support those labor trafficking chains. And we can become more aware of, of what labor trafficking looks like in our community so that we learn the 888-3737-888 hotline number just to right. report what you see. Don't go investigate it. I told my students a long time ago, you can't go out there and find victims unless you go through school and you get into law enforcement. And one of my students, when she was 19, she decided that's exactly what she's going to do. And now she's a federal investigator on human trafficking. <laughs> so, that's but incredible. you have to do the work. You can't just go do it. One of the bigger challenges in helping the community become part of the collaborative response is education. And in my world, we do a lot of education in the community that is in the faith-based community. So at our Insure Justice Conference, we always have a workshop track for parents and for faith-based leaders. And this year, we just launched like three days ago, Care 68 Network, and it will be a curated platform for the faith-based leaders to educate in their own community and to give them ready-made tools. And it's going to help us prepare the amazing resources that are available through local churches so that they can be a more strategic response to the overall collaboration to end human trafficking right here in our own communities. That's great. And we will link to all of that in the show notes so people don't have to go very far to figure out some of those next steps that you spoke of. I want to ask you finally on the show, the show is called The New Activist. An activist is sort of an intentionally loaded word, and it means a lot of things to a lot of people. I'm curious how you view the idea of activism. Like, How would you define activist? Do you see yourself as an activist? I didn't used to see myself as an activist because I moved yeah. rather slowly and deliberately. And I thought activists just went out there and marched. And now over the last 10 years, I've really changed my perspective on what an activist is. I believe that 
I'm a catalyst. I bring, you know, over 400 people into the room last week. I introduced wow. them to new ideas. I introduced them to a deeper understanding of what it looks like to be a judge working with a 14-year-old survivor of commercial sexual exploitation of children. And uh, one of the judges, we did a decade of judges, and I'll send you a link to the video of that if you want. One of the judges, the Honorable Douglas Hachimonji, he did a podcast and he said one of the things he wanted people to understand is that these are children. He doesn't like the term minor because that's related to a number. Oh, anybody under 18. These are children. How do we take care of our children? And it's just not as easy as some of the campaigns that are out there on social media. It's hard work right where you are. That's what an activist is. It is hard work right where you are. Good and appropriate final words from Dr. Morgan. Thank you so much to Dr. Morgan for her work with the Global Center for Women and Justice. For more on that, you can go to gcwj.org. Of course, links and everything are in the show notes. Speaking of which, links to all of our social media are in the show notes. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of that have the same handle, New Activist Is. A huge thanks, as always, to Propaganda, who scored today's episode. His podcasting, music, merch, coffee, everything can be found at prophiphop.com. Today's show was produced by Christina Gore, hosted and directed by me, with additional editing by Chad Michael Snavely. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Dr. Sandra Morgan, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends.